0: Hi everyone, I'm Andrew, and I'm Michael, and this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. and. I guess based on popular request, we're actually looking at another Aero sensor because we know there are just as many Aero geeks out there as, uh, or people who are just as geeky about it as we are, uh, and we love to talk about this stuff. So this week we've got... Uh, Ben Bishadden and Mark Ernsting from Ghibli, and Ghibli is a company that uh, started about six years ago, and it's yet another Canadian offering in the aero testing market, so I'm really curious what's in the water here, uh, because there seem to be a lot of (laughs) aero experts in Canada, Uh, but it's, it's great to see some more Canadian entrepreneurs come onto the scene, and it seems like a really solid product, so Ben and Mark, welcome to the show. Yeah.
1: Thank you. And, and Andrew and Michael, uh, thanks for hosting us.
0: Absolutely. So why don't we start off with maybe a quick introduction of yourselves, and you can maybe give everyone a little bit of uh, background and, and how you got here to where, to where Ghibli is today.
2: OK, let's start with
0: Mark. I may have to direct traffic
2: a little bit. When we have two <laughs> guests on and the two of us, there, there's a little bit of traffic control, re- control required. So Mark, uh, why don't we start with you?
1: Yeah, so um, my background is in exercise science and physiology. Uh, I was a professor of exercise and sports management out of when uh, I stopped my cycling and academic um, studies. Once I got out of academia, I started M1 sports management and through that business, I was exposed to uh, putting on high level cycling and triathlon events. I also became the first Canadian to be a UCI rider agent. and we owned and operated a men's continental cycling team. And through that, uh, built a lot of relationships with the athletes, teams and, uh, various federations with UCI and ITU and Ironman, uh, groups. And this has really helped us now in our, uh, business to be able to open those business relationships and, um, you know, continue those types of discussions for, for the use of our product. Um, Ben and I, met through a mutual friend i'll let ben give his background on on what he was doing at that point in time but after that conversation near the end we both looked at each other and and it uh we found out that we had both had been thinking about a similar idea of of doing real-time aerodynamics and developing something and and it was literally from that moment on that we were on the phone almost every single day after that, uh, coming up with the idea, and, and uh, we'll discuss that a little bit later here on, on, you know, the philosophy around what we tried to build on, on those foundations and pillars, but it, that's, that's really where it, where it started.
0: Excellent. And it sounds like you're certainly no newcomer to the, uh, to the world of cycling, so it's great to bring in that experience, someone who truly understands the sport and the industry. Mm-hmm. And Ben, how about your background and, and how you got here?
3: Yeah, so my background's in mechanical engineering. Uh, I started off with my undergrad at Dalhousie in Halifax um, before getting into the field of MEMS, or microelectromechanical systems, and that took me out to a master's at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, and then worked at a a foundry, which is a facility that builds uh, microelectronics, a very specific field um, that basically makes moving parts. Uh, It's a fairly wide field, but basically making one section is moving parts like pressure sensors in and transducers, uh, accelerometers, for example, that we use now in our product, but using technology that you would typically use to make computer chips like photolithography. Um, so it's, I would say, it's a very good transition to having the background of how these parts get made, how they get designed, the whole process flow to actually now implementing them in our own product. And then, as Mark mentioned, um, when we met, I had had the opportunity to start a wind tunnel project through University of Alberta. Um, basically, built a wind tunnel force balance from ground up, fully automated to adjust to different bike sizes. Um, could measure down to a sub half a gram resolution. Um, oh. Was working on flow, straightening out the flow through the in the wind tunnel with flow straighteners and honeycombs, etc. And then towards the end of that, I was in Vancouver at the time. Um, there's some some connections to discuss potential projects with the wind tunnel where, as Mark mentioned, a mutual connection um, had set up a meeting with us because he knew Mark and knew that Mark was very influential in the sport and said that we needed to chat. And then as Mark said, the conversation quickly changed from how what can we do in a wind tunnel to what can we do that's actually on a bike in real time that you can actually test globally and then i'd had notes in a notebook from probably i was going to conference a few years earlier where i had notes and scribbles on on a trip of just ideas of how this could look and then it just kind of clicked and my background's not the high level competitive um success that mark's had but always from very young age in competitive cycling at a provincial and national level. So just combining the engineering and sensor experience that I had with the cycling space was just a, an obvious path.
0: I'm always amazed at the number of engineers who, um, maybe they're not super elite, but uh, they're good athletes and then they just start to question, um, why does this happen? Why does it work this way? And it's, uh, it's really interesting to see some of the solutions that come out of that and looking at the pair of you i mean it's it's kind of the perfect synergy where mark you've got the the background in the sport you've got the the connections and then ben i mean most people use well (laughs) i shouldn't say most people many engineers have used uh things like accelerometers but to truly understand what makes them work um and to understand the limitations and the challenges i think that probably sets you above a lot of the competition in terms of um, bringing a system together and, and Troubleshooting and and solving all the problems that might exist in these uh, these systems.
2: So then, uh, the my my natural question is uh, clearly you you both of you have uh, have a passion for cycling and a, and you see you see the opportunity of uh, of bringing this product to market. Um, specifically, what were you looking to uh, to accomplish? What you know, what problem were you looking to solve? Um, by doing field aero testing, especially given, um, Ben, your experience with wind tunnels. Obviously, a wind tunnel is a, let's say, a tried and true technology in aerodynamic testing. Um, what uh, what does, in broad strokes, a field sensor bring to the table that existing technologies could not satisfy? Either one of you guys.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think in, in quick answer, it, it, it and it gives an opportunity for the masses to be able to know what their real time or what their aerodynamic drag is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when Ben and I had the initial conversation, we were talking uh, from his initial business plan around how can that really grow, and, and you're limited to 24 hours in a day to be able to put people through a wind tunnel, right? Yep. Um, my frustration as an athlete was always, especially when you're in, at the pro am type level. Uh, You don't have all the financial resources or sometimes the team resources to be able to go to a wind tunnel. And even if you do do that, from what I've now experienced and learned firsthand, had I done that even as a young 20-year-old athlete, I would have been overwhelmed within the wind tunnel of being able to really utilize that two-hour block efficiently without having... Uh, an expert with me or even a mechanic with me to make small changes and do things realistically you would have you would have been able to just identify your baseline what you came in with, but then what to do with that um, is is really the challenge and, and so our, our goal is, is to be able to bring real time aerodynamics uh, to the masses.
0: So that concept of what to do with it, let's put a pin in that and come back to that later because I think that's a yes, crucial please. part of that. <laughs> yes, 100%. I mean, yeah, I'm very, very interested in that conversation. Yes. Yeah, it's it's absolutely crucial for the success of these sensors. Um, but it's it's an excellent point as well. Um, having been to a wind tunnel, not testing myself, but having seen it in operation, uh, you might have two hours of time booked, but <laughs> you are not using two hours of wind tunnel operation. You might be using... 10 or 15 minutes total time, and the rest is just making changes to the bike. Um, so it's not an overly efficient way of doing things. Um, I think it's often seen as a magic bullet where you can solve anything with a wind tunnel, but I think that's far from the truth. And then, uh, Ben, with your experience with wind tunnels, uh, I'm sure you know that they they can be tedious and problematic and they don't always work properly, and there's other sources of experimental errors. So there's, there's no perfect solution. Um, but I think... The closer you can bring the measurement to the real operating conditions, the better the better impact, I guess you'll have in the end. Um, just because there's maybe not these unrealistic conditions. So if you're holding a bike, for example, at the uh, the rear skewer, um, that doesn't always represent the way people ride. So even if you're pedaling in a wind tunnel, maybe your body is moving slightly different. So I think bringing these measurements onto the road is truly the way to accomplish the proper measurement here
3: 100 and also like you said with the wind tunnel there's there's even different wind tunnels you're going to get different results just from even though they're all kind of considered that gold standard method of aerodynamics of measuring you're still going to get a different result if you go to san diego versus east coast versus europe or somewhere else which is and then and then what you said andrew is exactly correct it's the how does your body behave? In the wind tunnel, it's also not just that, but it's also turbulence. A wind tunnel is inherently has as low turbulence as possible. How does that change the airflow versus when you're outside and you've got wind gusts, you've got effect from trees coming off, you've got a completely different flow going over your body potentially than in a wind tunnel. So having those, measuring where it actually counts versus in a wind tunnel. Wind tunnels have their place um, for for certain aspects, of course, but um, for we we see a massive value not only in just measuring, but also making sure that you stay in that same position too. Which in the wind tunnel, you get that one number, but how does your body position change thirty minutes after you start getting tired, or forty minutes into an event?
1: And speaking to some of the the highest level pros that are focused on time trials as their specialty, almost all of them say that their team you know can get them into a super slick position in the wind tunnel. But then once they're out of the wind tunnel, the chance of them continuing to stay in that position and not modify it again has always generally happens from their experience, especially if the course all of a sudden has some rollers in it or some other undulating kind of terrain that they have to navigate at the speeds that they go at. Uh, They generally cannot hold or stay in that same position that they ideally put themselves in in the wind tunnel.
0: And I've got a minor bone to pick with um, any accuracy claims, whether you're talking about wind tunnels or power meters. But you'll have two wind tunnels that claim two percent uncertainty, but they give results that are four percent apart. Um, so, or five percent, say. Um, so someone is lying, or someone is not sure of what they provide. And it's the same across any kind of sensor, and it drives me nuts because there's no real standard evaluation in the industry. Um, but I don't want to turn this into a rant. This is not <laughs> about my my own engineering uh, opinions, but uh, I think yeah, it, it just highlights some of the issues that uh, that do exist with wind tunnels that people don't always give consideration to.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think in aero testing that uh, sometimes those errors are exacerbated by just how complicated that process is. Um, but before we talk about the process, and I know that's one of the things that we do want to ask you folks about, um, let's talk a little bit about the sensor itself. So um we've had uh, in the past we've had uh, the folks from NoShio on we've had uh Aerolab on some time ago and so we've had descriptions of these uh, of these devices in the past um but obviously each one is potentially a little bit different in you know the electronics inside and what it what it attempts to measure so um however you want to talk about it whether or not you want to actually get into the nitty gritty or if you want to just uh, stick to the the um, uh, the uh, the I guess the elements that uh, the, that your sensor is measuring or collecting from a, a, a third-party sensor, uh, I would love for you to speak about that.
3: Sure. Uh, so I'll, I can take that. Um, so, yeah, basically the main concept of the design from the very beginning was built around having it as simple as possible to use and basically emulating mm-hmm. the experience of a power meter. So something as simple, you can take out the box, put it on your bike, it's easy to set up, and you just ride. So that's kind of the the whole vision of everything that we've done and that kind of rolled out into, we have, for example, we're just going through a few features that we have gotten a lot of feedback from users that really resonate with them of what we've done. And also what's kind of lacking and what's been out there before is just for one example, we have an auto wake up. So you don't have to worry about, you don't turn your power meter on when you go for a ride, you just ride. Uh, (laughs) We have a waterproof design design, Um, You can go ride in any conditions. We have a patented technique that you can remove the pitot tube. You can clear out if you get any debris, if you're riding in rain or mud or something. We actually have a system that you can blow out the pitot tube. um, You can blow out the crosswind ports. So you don't have to worry about weather conditions. We've got an onboard very high-accuracy GPS sensor so that you don't Mm -hmm. need to be putting on, unless you're in a track potentially, but uh, you don't need to put on extra sensors, speed, speed sensors, which in this age, most people don't want to be putting off their speed sensor. They just took them off a while ago to, to move to GPS. Yep. And so that's really resonated and kind of a, a need for the simplicity of this being used wide scale. And an, another key thing of our design is how we actually measure the wind speed because wind speed is one of the most critical aspects in this and where some of them are, the most noise comes from. And we started off with just a regular pitot tube back in the early days. But we found, once we started doing more wind tunnel testing, we found, and we also saw this on the road, but we, we found, we pinpointed that at around 12 degrees yaw, you get really strong uh, shedding off the pitot tube because it's a round shape. Hmm. Pitot tubes are typically designed for higher speeds. Uh, they're used on airplanes with high speeds. When you have a really high speed, even if you have a crosswind, the relative crosswind is very low. So they're not designed to be hitting high crosswinds. Um, So that basically creates in that zone of 12 to uh, say say 10 to 15 degrees where you get on our design where we had this very, it's almost like a dead zone. You're not going to get much readings because you just get a lot of extra noise from that turbulence that's happening off the pitot tube. So that took a lot of work that we spent many, many months on, where we did computational fluid dynamics simulations. We did wind tunnel testing, particle image velocimetry, where you can basically you take a laser, shine it in a wind tunnel. Uh, you put uh, smoke particles into the wind tunnel, and you can actually image the flow uh, around the sensor. And so that gave us a lot of insight. Hmm. And then also real-world testing. And we came up with a completely unique uh, pitot tube shape, which doesn't even really look like a pitot tube anymore now. That is optimized for the speeds and the yaw angles that you would typically see in a bike, and that. So, listeners, you that- can't appreciate this, but uh, <laughs> Mark is holding up the
2: sensor and uh, go look at go look at images of it, uh, and we'll you know we'll post a maybe we'll we'll post the image of the sensor as well. But the uh, the front end of that uh, novel pedo tube looks more like. Uh, Almost like a, a paddle shape, like a canoe paddle shape, rather than a traditional rounded uh, cylinder.
0: What it reminds me of is those little wooden spoons you used to get with the little ice cream containers when you were a oh, kid yes, <laughs> <that's laughs> at the, the barbecues.
2: <laughs> the so, samples, the sample yes. spoons. That's, that's a right. much better <laughs> description. Yes. Also nicer.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's um I know there are some probes that are made for multiple angles. So I think a keel probe is is one style. Um but uh, it is a challenge that's existed like aligning the the pitot tube. And it's not like the pitot tube is a new invention
3: yeah. uh
0: not by any means, but uh there's certainly novel ways to approach different uh different limitations. So whether it's high crosswind, whether it's low speed. Um so there's a lot of considerations here and most pitot tubes like you said Ben um higher speed because most aircraft don't fly at the speed cyclists ride at, even if you're very fast.
3: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> unless you're unless you're drafting a uh one of those cars on the flats and the salt flats somewhere and you're you've got oh, like yeah. your over you're overgeared. I don't know what what the, the gear inches on those bikes are, but like you're you know you can you can go at hundred and fifty kilometers an hour or more uh <laughs> when you're when you're doing just just that one specific thing.
0: I don't think that's anywhere in my future.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um uh moving on from uh from the description of the device uh, i think it makes just a, i'll will spend two, maybe 2 minutes um summarizing some of the challenges that uh you know i've experienced uh, in in aero testing and uh um some of the past guests have uh, illustrated and the only reason to do this is sort of for for listeners who maybe aren't as steeped um in in this uh in this field to understand where some of the challenges come from um, and the, the, the best way, I think, to summarize that is uh, to pick out the fact that in order for us to uh, identify the the energy that goes into overcoming aerodynamic drag. We have to do a very good job, or I guess in case this case, you folks have to do a very good job of calculating or measure or directly measuring all of the other potential sources of where your energy could be going. And uh, very quickly, to borrow Mark uh, Graveline's bucket analogy, these buckets are overcoming gravity, acceleration, uh, rolling resistance, drivetrain drag. Um, so drivetrain drag you can kind of take a flyer at there you know uh if you well depending measured. on who you ask yeah well i mean it's it depends how clean
0: how well maintained your
2: drivetrain is it, it can, absolutely
0: does but it's yeah. uh, it's easier to quantify than some of those other things and it's it relatively is, and it's also repeatable
2: exactly it's constant within your test it's not going to change much uh rolling resistance is tricky and i definitely want to talk to you folks about how you handle rolling resistance um but acceleration and gravity are really big right obviously for 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 obvious reasons anyone who's got ever rid, ridden a bicycle up a hill knows that you know when that grade goes up the power required to maintain the speed goes up very quickly and then that could become the dominant sink for your power rather than Rather than arrow drag, right? So it's obviously super important for you folks to be able to to capture those those quantities accurately. Um, so in all in the instruments you were talking about, I didn't hear anything about um, alt- altimeters or any other devices. You know, there are other ways, obviously, at getting at uh, you know changes in, in elevation. So uh, yeah, why don't we start there? How are you How are you handling the the elevation uh, problem in your in your measurement or in your calculations?
3: Yeah, no, it's 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 a very key aspect, as you're saying, and it's, especially on a hilly ride or slight rollers, it can be a massive difference. So mm-hmm. we can't get into too too many details. It's still partially ongoing <laughs> improvements, and also for it's sure. a bit of a, a level of trade secret as well. Um, oh, but we 100%. do have we do have a barometer on board, a so very one of the most high accuracy barometers that you can get. Uh, we have accelerometers and we have GPS, and we, there's a a level of fusion between that we use for elevation. Okay. And then for the so you 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 mentioned you made a a point about
2: saying that you don't use a uh, a wheel on speed sensor which uh, I think every other brand that I've used you, requires that. Um, and their argument for having it is just that there is GPS lag, right? So if, you're, if your speed happens not to be super steady state, which you kind of, I suppose you try and do, and maybe we'll ask you about it when we talk about your protocols. But if your speed is not super steady state and there is some acceleration, deceleration, their case, and I'm not in a position to you know refute it or or support it, is that GP the, the lag of uh, commercial GPS is such that, you need something that is that has a higher response rate to your actual change in velocity or your actual acceleration in order to give you accurate uh, aero uh, or in order to be able to tease out the, the aerodynamic drag component of power. Um, what do you Where do you folks land on that? Obviously, you don't have a sensor, so I know where you land, but uh, do you want to speak a little bit about it?
3: Yeah, I'll just kind of say, kind of take a back step in terms of how we approached it and what's worked well for us. Mm-hmm. So basically, we... We spend a ton of time and what you're saying on data alignment is absolutely critical and not just the speed of all your our data values. So that's another bit of a trade secret that we have in terms of how we align that data and it's absolutely critical. Sure. Um, we GPS, we probably spent a good year. We built our first GPS. We had good data, but we also had a lot of challenges with it. We completely redesigned our board for another version that reduced the noise drastically. We're getting at least two, three X higher accuracy than like you would on your Garmin. That's, it's a very high hmm. accuracy GPS. Oh, um, cool. There will be situations where you would likely want a speed sensor, obviously an in indoor track. You're not going to get the good enough signal. If it's very strong street tree cover, there are scenarios where you can get spotty GPS, mm-hmm. but we, we sense your level of GPS accuracy during a ride. And then we can, basically inform user, okay, your CPS isn't good enough right now. We're just not going to calculate CDA or we'll tell you CDA, but give you a warning that may not be accurate in that scenario. But we have testers globally right now, and it's in very rare cases that it's an issue. And a lot of, from all the beginning, we had always had a speed sensor on board and the GPS sensor. And with the alignment and the way that we calculate our algorithm, Basically, when we have good GPS signal, we notice no difference in our CDA calculations from either data source
2: that's amazing because as an aero tester i i hate the speed sensor i always <laughs> i always I, for, I forget to put it on or you know some because people ride listen the different tire sizes are a thing now right so
1: so you sure. you have to be good about measuring wheel and, wheel, yeah. wheel <laughs> circumference for
2: yeah sure. i know so it's it's a it's a it's a pain in the ass and uh, uh, uh like
1: and then a magnet on a wheel that's a aero wheel
2: yeah yeah i I've, I've taped them to disc wheels it's, it's it's silly, and then the worst thing is that I always forget them on my on the, the on the customer wheels so then I end up having to call them and then' like oh I left my my speed sensor on your wheel I need to go can I can I swing by and pick it up so if you guys have solved this i am I will be one of the happiest people out there i'm uh, I would be I'd be thrilled you know? so
1: that kind of falls under one of the pillars when we started the company we we created the this vision of what we wanted to do and uh you know, under the pillars it's around accuracy is is key because in this mm-hmm. industry with everyone else, I mean, if, if you don't have accuracy that creates reliable and repeatable data, then it doesn't really work right well for, for, <laughs> for moving forward with a product. Uh, we wanted to make sure it was user friendly and consumer friendly in that regard, not just for engineers or data scientists or people that can really dig deep into the data and, and analyze it and, and extract what they need to extract from it had to be you know consumer friendly for for the average person to be able to to operate and be able to understand and the design of the sensor had to be innovative um, so those are our three pillars that to today we still guides guides us and the GPS was one of the discussion points from day one that we uh, as Ben mentioned took quite a bit of time to get right uh, because we know that everyone is stripping everything off of bikes. And yes, we're we <laughs> asking them to put a sensor on the bike. Um, uh, we have tested actually that the sensor does not cause more drag because of the way it's aligned right in front of the head tube. So uh, that was a, an interesting uh, part that we wanted to make sure we, we could assess as well. But the point is, is yeah, we realized that people are trying to take, you know, things like speed sensors off of their bikes. So for them to be saying that they would have to add it all the time. Uh, was something that we really wanted to try and, and avoid
0: and i think for a reliability standpoint as well the more external sensors you're relying on the more chance there is, is failure um, mm-hmm. so if you're connected to eight different sensors it only takes one of them to break not that anyone does that many but it only takes yeah. one of them to break and obviously the probability goes up pretty quickly when you start to stack them together like that
2: yeah 100%. makes sense yeah Um, can you folks talk about your, your testing protocol? And, uh, in this, uh, my kind of part B of that question was going to be, um, is, is your device primarily intended as a testing device? So by that, I mean, you go out there and either you or you and, uh, you know, a fitter or an aero coach kind of person, you know, does a bunch of passes and you make some decisions and you make some changes, or is this a device that you're thinking someone's going to have on their bikes, Maybe not all the time, but for some training, testing, racing, or maybe that's the first question to answer. Like, is what's the, uh, what's the expected use case? And then, then maybe we can talk about protocols after that.
1: So it goes back to our pillars in that we wanted to make it a consumer-friendly uh, device and, and not just for industry experts. We see the evolution of technology like this being used by everyone all the time in the years Mm -hmm. to come, Uh, but to start, you know, our early adopters are going to be industry uh, partners, teams like at the world tour level, uh, pro triathletes and coaches and bike fitters, like you indicated, as Mm -hmm. well as age groupers who are early adopters to embracing new technology. So that is our first cohort and that consumer profile will evolve a little bit uh, from that initial um, onset to that competitive age grouper that starts seeing those early adopters having the success because when they see somebody in their age group save 10 minutes on an Ironman distance just because they were able to change their bar position a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, for that and not train harder or, or longer and be able to improve themselves in that regard. Uh, it's going to be a very quick adaptation then from them seeing that to them wanting to have access to that as well uh, instantly. So with technology over the last, let's call it 15 years, evolving as rapidly as it is, especially sports technology, we see this adoption rate happening much quicker than, let's say, the power meter market took from the first power meter's kind of becoming accessible in the earlier mid 90s to really sort of taking off in the last 10 years and now right. becoming OEM you know for <laughs> yeah. manufacturers now to have, because the consumer has already gone through that experience and and understands the value of of those numbers and and the, the information that they're getting from that and how it how it works within their training. Uh, this type of technology will be a natural evolution for them to understand and and adapt to.
0: And I think there's an infancy period for any new technology where um, you get the early adopters and they're people who are very keen and they're willing to put up with um, some challenges in terms of the, the technical aspects. And I think this is actually quite a good example because the at least to truly understand the aerodynamics, you need a fair amount of technical background, and it's not necessarily for the layperson to interpret and to to adjust. But um, as familiarity increases, um, and you could make the same argument for power meters, actually, and even back to heart rate monitors. But uh, I think as the familiarity increases, there'll be more and more people interested in doing that and you get further up that S-curve for adoption. Um, and the real motivating factor, like you said, is when your neighbor or your competitor is now saving 10 minutes on an Ironman bike leg and you're not. Um, especially because there's... Well, I mean, it's a human condition, right? How can I get the same results for less work? So a um, little bit sad <laughs> sometimes. I know the pros are looking at how can I work just as hard and get faster? Uh, but uh, But there's certainly... A lot of motivation in keeping up with uh with your neighbor or your competitor and once someone starts to uh to use this successfully i think the dominoes are going to start to fall and it'll spread pretty quickly through um through all the the competitive athletes out there
1: yeah and the way we see it in in taking it from the initial phase of using it to test and to validate helmet changes or clothing changes or position changes to also using it in the race environment is going to be that natural evolution where the conversations that we're having with the world tour teams, they're very interested in seeing the data in the real world, even post race, so that they can give that assessment and analysis to even the GC riders that are starting, you know, two, three hours afterwards to to give any kind of info that they still can on a course profile too. the consumer afterwards, just like heart rate monitors, when they came out and, and there was that window of threshold that you could put with an alarm, you know, if you're within a 10 or 15 beat window, and if you got too slow or too fast, it would give you a signal that you could be staying within that threshold sweet spot to all, to being able to have that tool now as an aerodynamics, where if they crest a hill, if you are an age grouper and and this is not your sport and you're still on your tops where it could give you that reminder to be able to go back into your aero position uh so because we know that they're now back onto a flat road uh and then they can make the choice whether that's safe enough for them to do because of the traffic that's around them with other athletes or Mm -hmm. you know road conditions and environmental conditions or maybe their back is sore um or whatever else they're they're feeling they can make that choice but at least we could give them those reminders as well Uh, by knowing you know what their current cda is in that current uh, situation so that's how we see that evolution happening too
0: and i do see that as being such a huge advantage because i mean anyone who's been in a longer race or even a short race with very high intensity um once you start to once you're digging deep uh your your mental capacity like a lot of it goes towards just maintaining that effort so maintaining a good aero position becomes an increasing challenge. And sometimes you just need those little beep reminders, like get back down or tuck your head away. Um, and for friends who are racing, I've even suggested something as simple as like taping a little note onto your bars so that you, when you're tending to look down there, you just see like, remember to go in your arrow position or remember to do this. And it's something simple, but, uh, but that little reminder can save tons of time because it just keeps you in the fastest position
1: no no, exactly so you know going into the experience of the user the way it's it gets set up in our app is that there's a section called the rider passport and that's where they put in their personal information as far as their weight that's a combined weight of themselves and all of their equipment Mm -hmm. their tire size their um tire pressures the type of power meter that they're using, just all of their all personal information for that initial setup. And then from there, they are able to also pair all of their other N plus devices. So if that's with their power meter and their heart rate monitor. Mm-hmm. So it's a very simple step for them to do that. Uh, we have a feature also that allows them then to set up the sensor so that if the sensor is so that it's pointing in the right direction and it's very easy for them to just you know, mount it very conveniently uh, and properly on their bike, and then from there uh, they do a, uh, a calibration ride, and that calibration ride is a very simple uh, out and back where they would just hit a start tab. They at the before they start doing the turnaround, they just hit the end. It allows them to turn around. They come back. They hit the start tab. It comes back. They hit the end again, and then it gives them. Uh, the, the calibration uh, instantly uh, there for, for them. And at that point in time, they would then just go into what we call like a ride mode and they can then start uh, doing any kind of testing that they want to do. And, and the beauty of this uh, system that we have right now is, is that they can just test anywhere. It doesn't have to be always on that same consistent road. They can hmm. just go and do you know, a point to point if they want to, or they could do a five kilometer loop uh, it doesn't matter if it's going uphill or downhill. Uh, we do require that they kind of maintain sort of a minimum speed in order for that accuracy to, to be really good. And, and the, the quicker that they can get to or higher that they can get to uh, sort of in that 40 kind of plus range for the pro triathletes and world tour riders is not a problem. Mm-hmm. They can easily do 48 or even 50 in flat roads and, and maintain those types of speeds. Uh, and then there's obviously a, a lower cutoff for the, the amateur age groupers Uh, that we're working on as well you know to to be efficient for them but that's the the real point for our system is that they can use it in any kind of environment uh, from it we didn't want to have to be always on the same kind of test loop and doing it multiple times and uh, you know cross referencing that that data.
2: For sure, and that's that's a that's a huge advantage. Uh, you mentioned a, a lower threshold speed. Do you have that? Is that something you can talk about? Just to you know, from the perspective of it's useful for X kind of athlete, or is that still in development?
1: Yeah, no. So right now it's at thirty kilometers an hour, and okay. uh, we will, as we progress, try and bring that down. But uh, that's for us right now because we know our early adopters are individuals that are more than capable of, of oh, yeah. those types of speeds. Um, but that's that's where we're at, and then yeah so in the in the way it works is they would do like a recording and Mm then uh once they've done all the recordings they can it'll tell them uh that they will see a rides a a summary screen and then from that summary screen they can also then uh do notes and take pictures of themselves mm-hmm. because what we found is when you're in the field it's very useful to be able to remember which helmet you used at that oh, time yeah. or even standing somewhere like if you have your jersey unzipped and then the next time you you zip it up but at least you can then or send it to your coach as an example and, and then your coach can pick up and say well okay but these are the small little details that uh you know are different between the runs that, that you did as an example and then once you've done that, uh, they can toggle through all the different laps. So if they do different helmet changes on the different laps, it'll give them that uh, input. And mm-hmm. then once they save that uh, ride, then they can always go back to an area, what we call sessions, and then they can just pull it up by date where it is. And then from there, they can just toggle through again uh, the different sessions and, and they can share those files uh, with the coaches or uh, individuals that are you know looking at at this with them
2: super cool okay i've got a few ux ui questions for me for you uh mark and ben uh so of course listeners you can't uh, see what mark was just doing but he was uh uh he was showing us on the screen we have the benefit of being able to see him uh the app that is uh that is the ghibli app i imagine um where all of the settings that he just described can't be found so my first question is um do you have to ride with your phone
1: yeah so right now uh we are app-based Uh, in in how we operate the Mm -hmm. phone ideally is accessible if you want to be able to do the laps on the fly in that regard but we have uh the strength of our signals can allow the phone to be in a back pocket as well if if that is uh required Mm -hmm. we are we know that the next transition will be to head units and that's something that uh, we're working on as well because that'll just be a natural evolution for that to happen. as well we have uh, the ability to have onboard storage as well. So uh, okay. with you know some of the, the teams as an example when they want to look at it after a time trial is done then they can they can pull the full full file off uh, off the sensor
2: without having their phone. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. That, that makes sense. Um, when you were showing us the device, I imagine the uh, the mounting point is just to a, a GoPro style mount that would be kind of an out front setup.
1: Correct. Yeah. For, so for the most part, uh, you would have like on your, um, like a Garmin mount, if it was, let's say, mm-hmm. on a road bike or depending on how you have it on the time trial bike setup, you would have an adapter plate. Generally, that would, that would be allowing like a GoPro or a light type mount to go on the mm-hmm. bottom of your uh, computer mount and then from there that uh marries with our gopro mount style um on the on the sensor
2: okay so uh for so for right now uh, you you would need you would need the phone you said when you did the calibration run you would press tab now would you do that on the phone or is that is or is there a button on the device itself
1: no, so our device has no on-off switches. Nothing. It's okay. it's, it's just has a USB-C uh, plug adapter, and then it mm, have okay. a, a light that just indicates that it's it's operating once it's being woken up, and uh, from there everything is is through the app in that regard. So if you don't have a phone mount, what you can do then is is uh, just you'd have to put it in your pocket, but ideally for these types of test runs and what we found for most people, they're more than fine right now to when they do the testing aspects is, is having the the phone mounted uh, on the bars.
2: Okay.
0: Sounds good. So in terms of the data that is presented to the rider, um, I assume most of it's used in a post-processing, like reviewing after the ride, as opposed to an instantaneous output, but can you break down the drag versus yaw angle, things like that? Or um, are there other ways to process the data that you've discovered that seem to be helpful?
1: So one of the, the the rider right away, and in real time, will see their CDA and see the wind speeds and the wind direction. So we've got like an arrow that shows the wind direction and then the speeds. And then, um, They will also see their LAP CDA as an example. And we can configure this in the settings. You can configure the screen however you want it to to look. Um, And then they'll have their real-time CDA up here as well. And so what it does is it takes down the last minute of of everything, and then every second updates and refreshes that, um, that past minute.
2: Okay, so it's a moving average of 60 seconds. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, too, because obviously, I mean, anyone who's done aero testing can appreciate this, but that that's, if you're ever looking at, you know, real-time CDA, it, it's it, it jumps around quite a bit. So yeah, uh, 60 seconds is, is what you're, you're sampling.
3: Yeah, and Andrew, I'll just add a little bit to what your question about the post-data processing as well. So we do, like Mark said, we have the real-time view that a writer can see their CDA, their lap CDA. They can also, during the ride, they can press laps and kind of scroll through their CDAs for different tests during the ride. But once they finish the ride, if they have an inter- internet connection or the next time they do, it will automatically upload to, to the cloud. That cloud right now allows us to see every rider's data that we can help them process. We can learn from the data, but it also gives each rider a personal uh, portal where they can see all the rides and all their history. Once they pull out, pull it up. It's kind of like a Strava or a Training Peaks type um, portal that they have. Well, they'll have their GPS map, their uh, CDA graphs, all their lab information. Uh, if they have their heart rate monitor paired, everything else. Um, so, there's definitely, like you said, there's a lot that you can learn on the post-processing side as well. You can compare certain sections from the GPS map, how your CDA changed from certain sections. You can see how it got affected by. In a headwind versus a tailwind uh, we have plots to separate out uh, different wind conditions because we know that a uh, crosswind will affect your cda uh, so having that that analysis and then also just um, there's lots of analysis extra it's external to that is even just looking at high power and low power and seeing how you're your CDA gets altered with different conditions. Hmm. So yeah, I'd say the kind of the real time and the post processing is. I'd say it's from our experience personally using it is maybe equal equally powerful. I would say.
0: Yeah, I think um, the offline processing. Uh, once you get a chance to dig into the data, and maybe this is the engineer in me talking, but uh, once you get a chance to dig into the data, that's where you can really start to learn things. Um, but I do know that. One of the things that I see as kind of lacking is the uh, the guidance that you would get from mm-hmm. from a number. So I think to engineers or to someone who's familiar, having a certain CDA or seeing a certain CDA or seeing how that changes is somewhat intuitive. But for other people, what does 0.23 mean? What does 0.21 mean? Um, like some people would be ecstatic seeing 0.1 or 0.21, and then other people, they're kind of like, okay, well. What, what is this? So, and I don't know how to do this. And I, I know as an industry, we're not there yet, but the ideal solution would be if you can say, lower your head or tilt this or get your back down. And we'd need other sensors to pick up body parts, but I would love to see some kind of instructional information show up just to be a very easy to use solution.
2: Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that anyone is there. I haven't talked to anyone who's, who's quite there. Basically no. what, um, uh, what, what I've only, uh, the, um, uh, the only bits of, of, uh, actionable advice are, is housed in the brains of, of people who do this for a living, like aero coaches and aero fitters who've done these sessions time and again, and they, they sort of know what works some of the time, most of the time. That's really the only answer I've ever, I've ever heard to that question
3: yeah we've we've definitely put a lot of thought into this too and we have have to say we're not there's lots of work that we still have to do then as well because first the first challenge to solve is having it work reliably and getting consistent Mm -hmm. data from it and then but fully i I agree that absolute critical aspect is how do you actually get someone to reduce their cda Um, and we've we've got some ideas on that and it's kind of in line with kind of what mark was showing where we can add pictures um, so we really think that th- the image-based direction is where we can add a lot of value to it in the future, but there's there's a lot, I think, that, in that, that once we get out to market that we'll be adding in the future and that we have a lot of ideas on.
0: Another uh, maybe feature request, let's call it that, uh, that I would have is um, as, as this becomes more and more used, you're obviously going to be able to access the data for a lot of testers. So having almost... Um, guidelines for what is expected for a certain body morphology. So if you're a certain height, if you're a certain weight, basically collecting that metadata and saying, okay, this is the average, your 70th percentile for, for your height and weight. Um, like, I think that'd be really neat to have some of this, uh, Metadata available for users just to
3: know 100%, where yeah, they stand. I'd say it's out um, of almost but, everyone I've tested. Yeah, it, it's one of the first questions I get: is how did I compare it to <laughs> other people in my category and my age or whatever? <laughs> it's typically first or second question.
1: Yeah, and more importantly, it's a combination also on the type of event. That they're targeting. So, an individual pursuiter on the one extreme or like a kilo rider versus an Ironman 180K type, you know, long course distance event uh, is going to be a different position. Even an individual pursuit or time trial versus a team time trial, their positions are slightly a little bit different in order to affect the flow of a team versus the individual rider uh, when they look at their setup. So, the consumer is going to have to also play and understand uh with their age <laughs> their flexibility you know the the type of course that they're going to be on is it is it a flat long distance triathlon course or is it a hilly type course you know and, and so all of those things also take into have to be taken into account when when they look at it just for them to try and get to the with cda value it doesn't necessarily help them actually succeed in, in the fastest time that they can do on the bike for that to discipline an age group that they're in.
0: Yeah. And maybe, maybe this is motivation for people to, uh, to stretch more. Cause I know that's something I need to work on and just seeing like, Oh, if you were more flexible just do you'd deadlifts, to lower your CDA deadlifts. then. And, and
1: the some things aren't in life. <laughs> yeah. Some, some things aren't also intuitive as you say, and that's, I think that's where we can really show help them with the education process. Like we worked with one individual who was uh 61 years old, I believe his age was, and, his arrow bars were widened by three centimeters. So a centimeter and a half on each side. And that allowed him then to have a much more relaxed shoulder uh, with his Mm. head. Uh, And Mm. then we swapped out his helmet uh, from the one that he had had on, on just the options that, that that were there. And then we also found that his shoe covers the way he had them taped up to his ankles and and things weren't ideally working for him either that there was some savings there. And um, you know, that outcome, was just over a two minute savings, over four minute or over 40 KTT uh, that he That's did a at lot. the provincial That's championships. And, and he actually, the, the two weeks after when he did it, he, he did exactly that time prediction savings uh, from it and, and won his age group, which he had never done before in that regard. And, and he instantly was sold on, on the idea of the, <laughs> the technology uh, from it. So, um, you know, those are the things that, that we're gonna have to work on and, and help that consumer interaction. Uh, mm-hmm. with with the technology.
0: Do you find that there's a lot of fear or reluctance for people adopting a new technology or just being intimidated by it?
1: From our experience right now on the early adopters, so those individuals that we were talking about before are, are embracing it um, immediately that there's a real need and desire for from what we're seeing um, from from all of the conversations that we're currently having. The key thing in the industry right now is is to find it. The, the partnerships that, uh, you know, for a sensor that, that can deliver the, the accurate data and, and uh, that, that, that they're looking for and, and that also make it user friendly. So those are key things, even for the people that understand the, the science side of it, they're still asking for user friendliness uh, mm-hmm. from it because if they're on the track and they only have, you know, the track booked for six hours or eight hours and, and they want to have four or five athletes tested on the team during that time or even two, they wanna see that data really quickly. They don't wanna to have to wait and, and for that data to, to come in.
2: Yeah, uh, I from having done you know a whole bunch of these the last over the last two years, I could not agree more with with that user user friendliness and and you know minimal issues kind of statement because that is that is maximally important, especially if you're trying to run it as a business, uh, and you're you've got customers who are waiting for you. It, it it is critical. And if I was to plug a feature request like the you know the the head unit integration, that would be a big one for for folks because. Um, yeah, sure. You could, you could put a phone mount on, on a bike and, uh, but you know, not that many people ride with their phones. Um, and, uh, if you could, if you could have it, just talk to you, talk to the, the head unit, that would be, that would be a huge win. I wonder if you've thought about doing it with the Karoo, which I guess is now a, a SRAM Ru, um, because it's obviously just like, a you know, it's a, it's an Android phone. Right, it's running Android software, and I'm wondering if you could, if it would be easier to start there. But I don't know anything about these things. This is like the farthest away from my core knowledge. But uh, yeah, that that would be that would be a useful feature to have for sure.
3: We have actually worked on that, and also an, another option is the LeoMo head unit. It's kind of a similar uh, yeah, Android-based yeah. platform, so that we've actually already run on those.
1: Yeah, and so one of our strengths right now is that uh, you know we're both iOS and Android compatible. Mm-hmm.
3: That's really cool.
2: Um, one, I have one last question. I know we've talked about testing, but because this is like you know, I, I'm the hammer and you guys are the nail. Right now, it's that's 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 what my that's where my brain automatically goes. You mentioned um, Ben when you were talking about uh, some of the limitations with the GPS is is tree cover, heavy tree cover. Um, any other considerations if we're going to go? If I'm you know, if I've got one of these strapped to the front end of my bike uh, and I'm going to go out and test any other. Uh, considerations for routes? I know you said there is a lot of flexibility, but do some routes or some, you know, road conditions, weather conditions uh, lend themselves to a higher accuracy
3: results than others? Yeah, definitely. Kind of a few key things just to make sure the data is good is first of all like mark mentioned the wind speed uh, we have tested down to 25 um, kind of for just good data we will sometimes cap it at 30 and that's that's relative wind speed so not ground speed so if you're going into 10 kilometer an hour headwind you can actually be going Mm -hmm. slower and still collecting good data so that's kind of a a term that will get added to the terminology of riding once it gets out is wind speeds versus relative wind speed and ground speed. Yep. Um, so the key there is that if you're going, you can go up a hill, but if you're going up a steep enough hill that you're only going 20 kilometers an hour with no tailwind uh, or no headwind, that could be a, ch- or that will be a challenge. The faster you go, the better results you get. Your CDA does get smoothed out a lot. I'd say past 35 kilometers an hour, relative wind speed. Mm-hmm. Um, a constant uh, road surface helps a lot, obviously, just to get consistency in data. And also uh, drafting and passing cars, just the way that the sensor measures the wind speed at a very specific location on the bike. But you having kind of wind gusts, strong wind gusts externally happening by, if you're riding in heavy traffic, you'll get a lot noisier results. So typically we'll want to go in a section with minimal or not much traffic and you Mm -hmm. that is something we're working on and extracting useful data and drafting events as well or drafting scenarios but right now it's it's only for just you riding by yourself without uh drafting interference from another rider so let's say those are kind of the key key aspects we don't really need um certain straights or anything it's mostly tree cover like you said um make sure your relative wind speed's high enough and kind of a a section of road where there's not a lot of traffic.
2: So can you make can you be a little bit more specific about not a lot of traffic cuz this is something that I struggle with in so I'm in Toronto and uh, you know even getting out of the city a little bit uh, to find good roads for the system that I have been using which is AeroTune is a little bit tricky and traffic is definitely one of the one of the the, the hardest things or to find a traffic free road so obviously busy traffic I can see how that would be a no go but if you have you know a car every couple minutes is that going to you know muck up your data or is or can you still extract useful information under those conditions
3: no no for sure because we, we do average for 60 seconds as well so if you do get a car here and there we we are investigating and have investigated kind of the, the effect of cars passing using videos and etc and there is an effect but it, it does get averaged out a lot if it's only very sporadic but you just wouldn't want kind of a, a steady stream of cars from downtown and it's also you uh, breaking will artificially spike your CDA because we, we don't totally. account for the energy lost by you braking. Uh, but we, what we do do is we, we actually sense the braking. So we'll just cut that piece of data out. So if you're just doing kind of one braking event, you'll just see kind of a bit of a gap in the CDA and i will continue. Um, but if you're in a scenario with a lot of traffic and traffic lights, stop signs, et cetera, it's obviously going to be very challenging to extract a lot of good data.
2: We had a company out of New Zealand on the show four or five weeks ago, and this is a totally flipping comment, so I apologize in advance. But there, uh, uh, this guy's uh, created a braking power meter, and it's all for mountain biking, right? Because he's trying to optimize lines and optimize use of brakes, where obviously braking is much more important. But you know, you should incorporate that technology into what you folks are doing, so then you can capture braking. <laughs> yeah. And of course, it's trivial because yeah. in time trials and triathlons, you're you know you're not braking. Yeah. So I'm yeah. sorry for that. <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> it does make me wonder though with the uh, the cars passing if you could incorporate a signal from like the Garmin Varia radar um to see when a car does go by and then use that to exclude or at least put a warning on the data to say there might be an interruption here um so but yeah this all gets into the sensor fusion stuff
3: that's kind of what we found is really key, too, is just being able to isolate the sections that are bad and just taking those parts out. So if you're going mm-hmm. under 30 kilometers an hour or under 25, your data doesn't just stop and you have to start the test over. We just cut that piece of data out. So if you're cresting over a hill and you drop below that speed, we'll just know that that section of data isn't going to be as accurate as the rest take it out and then continue when you keep going so mm-hmm. and that's the same with braking and, and like you said andrew cars passing etc that's what we're working on as well just to be able to filter out more and more of those non-ideal conditions to have it work
1: and, and even things like if, a, if we know that the phone is in the back pocket and the person has to get out of their position to do that that it automatically scrubs time from the start and the finish so that it cuts those things out so there's lots of things Mm -hmm. that we're working on right now that that are going to be implemented as we continue to grow and and in all of these conversations we don't ever want to come across as as if sounding arrogant and that we've got it all figured out i think we're very open to you know working with with people in the industry you know hearing all of the types of requests like what we're discussing right now and uh, working with you know really smart people in in their respective fields to to keep pushing this technology and and advancing it uh, as rapidly and as as, as we can.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm really really thrilled to hear you say that because I think that's and uh, listeners, uh, Mark and uh, and the the two and Andrew and I were all, before we started recording, we're talking about how this industry is is chock full of folks who are really interested in collaboration. And that always makes me, you know, super happy to be, you know, in my own small, very small way, a part of that, uh, of that process. Um, because that's, that's the way we all move forward. But, uh, one last question I promise on the technical side of things is, uh, I know, I'm sorry, this, uh, this is definitely one of my, uh, you can, you can probably tell this is, this is something that I, I, f- I have uh, a lot of interest in, but, um,
0: I think I can hear the smile on your face right now. But
2: um, how is it? How do you (laughs) folks uh, handle rolling resistance? um, And you know, how do you how do you account for it? And then, do you account for it potentially changing over the course of the day when, let's say, temperature changes, um, especially tarmac temperature changes? If you're testing over, you know, a handful of hours when the sun comes up and those sort of uh, thermal effects can potentially depending who you ask some people say yes some people say no uh, but let's say maybe uh, could have uh, uh, could affect rolling resistance the you know where it's not the same when you started the the testing to when you finished it
3: that's a very good question um currently we assume a constant rolling resistance so in the app when mark initially showed that rider passport the kind of the generic view is you would pick a rolling or a, a ground surface so you'd have just kind of generic uh, categories of a smooth velodrome, a smooth road, rough road, really rough road, et cetera, Mm -hmm. kind of have categories that then we internally have a rolling resistance just for the user that doesn't really have an idea what the rolling resistance is or care that much. Um, And then we also have the ability to enter in a custom rolling resistance for someone that wants to look it up or someone in a team that knows exactly what their rolling resistance is on a track, for example. Uh, we we have the hardware on board and we've we've done some testing and we have uh, ongoing development to do rolling resistance calculations, estimations, and adjustments on the go. And it's mostly, I won't go into a lot of detail here, but it's I'll give kind of a hint that it's all frequency-based, so that we think is the future for this. And we've uh, mm. been doing a lot of exploration on that. Um, but for the time being, there is... Um, the key that we feel needed to be solved initially was just getting that constant CDA because there's so many challenges with the GPS, with everything else that making it usable um, and presenting that information to a user and an athlete in a way that's valuable for them and as long as your rolling resistance doesn't change like you mentioned, if it's if you're out for a six hour ride, there is a chance it's going to change if you go from smooth road to gravel road, it's 100% going to change, and it's going to change your CDA that we show. But if you're kind of for these more early testing that we're doing where you're going out on a 10K stretch or a three-minute out and back or something, the the value, even if you're rolling distance off, the relative differences by... If you're testing two different helmets, different positions will still be right, but your absolute accuracy could be off if you're rolling distance a bit off. So yep. we've kind of placed that as... Uh, category below in importance to getting it out to the consumers and then we have in our back pocket the hardware that's we think extremely capable and the most capable hardware out there to be able to tackle this with a with the data that we're already collecting and the work that we're doing Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, for what it's worth, I think the uh, the, the, the delta between uh, setups is, is more valuable than absolute accuracy. Obviously, absolute accuracy has utility and, you know, race forecasting and all that other fun stuff. But if you're if you're, you know, if your objective is to get faster then knowing that helmet A is faster than helmet B by this percentage, that's that I think that's that is I totally agree with you. That is more valuable than the absolute accuracy.
0: And I think it's similar in our argument that we discussed recently about uh, running power where what does it actually mean? But is it is it relevant to or is it something you can use to yes. improve your race? Yes. So I, I think this is um, yeah, and this is a much much smaller error than we'd be talking mm-hmm. about with running power. Um, but one, one follow-up question I do have is actually on air density compensation. So do you have, some internal calculations that uh, over the course of the day, if you have the temperatures changing significantly, your density is going to change, which has a direct impact on your drag. So do you calculate that dynamically?
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's something that gets updated with, with each sample.
0: Okay. Yeah. Simple answer to a long question, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, and I guess just to, to wrap everything up or to, to bring it all to, um, the, the end question for everyone is what level of overall accuracy would you expect in this? And, uh, and I guess what is the the baseline? Cause as we discussed earlier, wind tunnels, yeah, they have their own challenges, but, uh, what, what do you expect out of like good conditions, good testing conditions and good testing protocol?
3: Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. Like I said, going back to what we said before, there's, Even with power meters, with wind tunnels, just challenges with our technology even, even harder because we don't have a direct comparison that we can say this is what we would call a gold standard. We can't put our sensor in a wind tunnel because we need to have the actual external forces. We need to have the rider power being exerted on the wind and having power being balanced by the wind so we can't test in a wind tunnel. We have tested in a wind tunnel to get that cda value and then taking the exact same position same equipment with the same rider outside to compare and we have uh, gotten extremely good correlation with that um, with i'd say more uh, controlled environments um, but the challenges then is like we talked about at the beginning if you have different wind conditions if you have the body position can change because you're not going to be in that same position so it's really hard to say for, for certain if it's off by 10%, is that because the wind condition is different, is because you're behaving differently on, on an outdoor road. So the, this, the comparison, I'd argue to say that we there's no way they can really put an actual accuracy on it for, for sure. Um, but in terms of what we're able to get, we, we have been able to replicate in good conditions almost a third decimal place to wind tunnel values. Um, one test that we just did, so it was a couple of days ago from one of our riders, we had test a couple of different helmets and gloves versus no gloves with the same helmet. And that was a CDA increase from 0.233 to 237 by putting on his gloves. So hmm. if you co- correlate gloves that bad. to. Gloves were <laughs> bad in this case, yeah. So that correlates to about a two watt difference. So in terms of, and we're able to reliably pick that up. So if you kind of, Compare that in terms of just of relative what we're picking up and differences. And we've picked up, like Mark mentioned initially, shoe covers, which are even slightly smaller, bottles on down tube versus C tube. Um, so, kind of the level of differences that we can notice is definitely in that, in the, the low third decimal place on your CDA. So, kind of a couple percent range.
0: Maybe we can't say a percentage. Accuracy for certain, but we can say good enough. It, it can pick pick <laughs> up the things that need to be picked up, and and honestly, like to the same person getting on the bike twice in a row, you're going to get different numbers in the wind tunnel. So, yeah, um, yeah. so I think you're within that range of accuracy. So that's that's what I wanted really wanted to hear. And I'm sure what everyone wanted to hear is that you can pick up those differences.
3: Yeah, it's it's really those small differences. If you switch from a TT bike to road bike, everyone's gonna know that they feel more aerodynamic, but it's that difference between TT helmet one and TT helmet two or an elbow or a shoulder shrug or gloves or no gloves Mm -hmm. that you can't feel. There's almost no way that anyone can feel those small differences. But if you compile Mm -hmm. three of those, four of those, five of those differences on top of each other, or it's a 40k event or a 100k event those, The differences could still be quite large and it's one thing
1: for a coach to uh, tell the athletes to do something it's another thing with the current athletes not the old school athletes but the current athletes seeing the data and seeing the proof to then believing it uh, that we're seeing so what we're noticing even at the national team level or world tour level uh, if they can show that data the athlete will respond much quicker to adapting uh to the advice and and one of the images that we didn't even initially pick up on was one of our very first times we went to the wind tunnel is um an elbow bend that was you know from basically this to this it was a very minor difference and that resulted uh in a 10 percent change and when you're looking at somebody doing a stage race at the highest level even and combined know that that energy loss over weeks of like a tour Mm -hmm. and being able to constantly understand that if you're in a breakaway how to reduce that uh savings in order to keep that energy for you know the time when the attacks happen um is uh something that we found is is very powerful uh for the athletes to see and even somebody that we worked with on, on as a sprinter understanding that initial wind-up process that for them to be very conscious from the moment they start entering that track and doing that windup, the energy that they're saving by trying to be a little bit more efficient on that initial windup is not only gonna allow them to, to come into that 200 with that fraction of a, a added speed, but it'll, it'll give that extra you know, savings on the energy that they, that they saved as well going into it. So uh, okay. those little micro differences when we're talking about fractions of seconds at, at the shorter events are really key uh, now for the athletes to evolve uh, in, in the sport.
0: So I really like your point there about uh, energy savings over long races for tour riders. And I think this is something that's often overlooked because a lot of people just say, oh, they're in a peloton, it doesn't matter. There is one person at the very minimum that it really matters for, and that's that person <laughs> out front. Uh, and yeah. likewise, and yeah, you are you might be exchanging position quite frequently, but um, in, a, in a breakaway is another great example where, Um, and it's often, it's not the big name riders. It's the domestique riders who end up in the breakaways quite often. And they're the ones who actually can benefit from this, uh, quite a bit more than the, the Chris Froome's of the world, but, uh, they rarely get the opportunity to go into a wind tunnel. So this actually opens up the, the door for them quite a bit. And I think can really have a big impact on overall performance.
2: Mm-hmm. absolutely and uh just getting back to what you folks were saying about those 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 differences and and uh Ben your point about you know the stacking of your marginal gains whenever i i think about a new technology or device or whatever the number one question is you know yeah. Does, does it do what it purports to do? But more importantly, I think is, is, is it useful? You know, mm-hmm. can it, can it improve Actionable. my, my experience in some way you know, in this, in this case, does it, can it make me faster? And for sure, you know, even if, even if the technology isn't perfect. And like I said, we've talked to a, a bunch of folks uh, who who are in this space who make devices or make, you know, apps that, 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 that measure aerodynamics Um and no one's got perfect it perfected. There is no, you know, it's nowhere near that. And this is a trivial thing to say. This technology is nowhere near the the state of development that let's say power meters are. Right. The the example that you used earlier, Mark. Um, so it's, uh, but I, I still am a huge, obviously I'm a huge proponent and I'm a big believer that, that it does, you know, these, t- the, this sort of technology does improve the, the rider experience. It does make people go faster. Um, and so, um, i think where i would like to wrap this is to ask you folks where you know where in the where in your development process are you can i go online and and order one of these things and if i do when when could i expect it to show up where how close are we to having a ghibli in uh, in the, the hands of the people that want one
1: yeah so we have a finished product now um one of the challenges that we faced over the last year are is with the overall global environment on, on electronic part shortages that we're working <laughs> yeah, we're, through. That conversation's
0: um, been beaten to death, I think. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that is our just one uh, factor, really, that we're working through diligently on. And, and um, we're having some good conversations with industry individuals that are helping us uh, through that process as well. But uh, as we get through that, uh, we'll be updating our website uh, with a date and time when we're able to deliver. And, and once that happens, we'll do it when we actually know that we're having inventory and, and stock uh, in place uh, for that. But we're pushing as, as quickly as we can to uh, get to that point um, because as you've alluded to, and even for yourself as testing as an example, that, that you wanna get access to this type of technology, uh, the demand is is really there, and, and the more conversations we have, the, the next question really only comes down to, can, "Great, can you ship me one?" Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know. so uh, it is a really it's an exciting position to be in, and uh, being part of this new emerging market is is, um, is has been challenging and fun, and that's why it's taken all these companies as long as it has, I think, to to get right because it's not a, an easy technology to to get accurate data from. Uh, but now that we're at, in that position we're really looking forward to that next next stage in evolution of, of, of where we're going
2: uh so Ben mark thank you so much for for taking the time you know in your I'm sure very busy schedules to come on uh, endurance innovation and talk to us uh, as uh, as hopefully you've seen from us we're, we're, we're big nerds when it comes to aero, uh, aero technology aero testing and it's always uh, it's always a treat to talk to someone who we haven't talked to yet uh, about what they're working on uh, we, I know we always learn something that uh, when when we have folks like yourselves on the show. Yeah, and, and Michael and Andrew, uh, thank you very much for having us on on your show.
3: Yeah, thank, thank you. That was, was fun.
2: Uh, and listeners, hopefully you've learned something new today. Um, and uh, if you have, then uh, tell a friend and uh, give us a five star rating and a review on iTunes. And uh, if you really like the show, you can help us pay for making it by going to patreon.com/slash/enduranceinnovation. Thanks, everyone.